to start off tonight. I have the special secret instructions for your post-retreat first YouTube meditation, (laughs) which is go to YouTube and bring up what does the spleen do? I think we should incorporate it into the retreat, although (laughs) a group of Harvard Medical School students who seem to have spare time on their hands. Anyway, enjoy it and it will fit right in. So I want to start off with a poem tonight. This is a reading from John O'Donohoe and it's called For a New Beginning. And I'm reading it because it may feel like it's the end of the retreat, but of course it's also the beginning. In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time it has watched your desire feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight when your courage kindled and out you stepped into new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of the opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure, hold nothing back, learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm, for your soul senses the world that awaits you. So we've been sitting together for nearly a week, a week of silence and rain and cold wind and hot sun and crickets and turkeys and struggle and tears and qigong and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. (laughs) And it's been a week of immersion in the body, really immersing ourselves in this amazing event, holding its various parts with attention and with gratitude. And tomorrow, you, your 32 parts, all of the parts will leave. The 32 parts sort of go with us, which I guess makes it a portable retreat. And we head back to work, you know? We head back to work with, with, to work, to automobiles, to TVs, to computers, to voicemail and email and texting. It's a little overwhelming. And my guess is that many of you have the sense, oh, what am I going to do? Especially those of you who are new. How do we practice in the midst of our extraordinarily busy lives as Bob was mentioning this morning. How can we carry the the healing that we've experienced here this week into the busyness of those lives? And how can we trust what you have begun to find here? So tonight I want to continue the theme of last night's talk, actually, Bob's talk, to explore even more how we suffer in our daily lives and most particularly to continue the, the theme of how we get caught in stories. And these stories, 
These stories are like houses that we inhabit. We move in and we look out through the windows and that's how we see our world, is from the inside of the stories. And some of those stories, as we began to talk about last night, can be very strong and they can be very destructive. So the questions that we all have are things like, how can we live with wisdom? How can we live with whatever wisdom has arisen during this week? How can we live with and still stay grounded in our bodies? You know, this week with the Qigong and the reflection on the body parts and the walking practice and just being here in nature is a very grounding kind of time. So this isn't going to be a practical, you know, how to sit every day and how to find a meditation group, that kind of thing. We'll talk a bit about that in the morning. Um, But I do want to try to convey to you what has been most helpful to me as I live a householder's life in the world. So tonight we're going to talk about the story called Mary Grace Goes to Burning Man. So nearly 18 years ago, my husband Russell and I were sitting in the office of our beloved therapist and we had been working with him for about mm, a few years and kind of made our way out of a really serious crisis in our relationship. And on occasion, Our deal with him was that he would see one or the other of us alone, but anything that came up in those sessions with him that were one-on-one had to be fair game for the couple's sessions. So we're there, and the session is kind of going on, and at some point George sort of leans forward in his chair, and he looks at Russell and he says, isn't there something you need to tell Mary? You know, one of those not good moments in therapy, right? So poor Russell, you know, he took a deep breath and he said, I want to go to Burning Man. (laughs) So this was a long, this was 18 years ago, right? So it just wasn't quite the thing that it is now. So I had no idea what to think. I didn't know anything about Burning Man, and, you know, he tried to explain a little bit there in the session, and then he talked a little bit more about it as as time went on, and the more I learned, the more afraid I got. And, you know, and then I began to see pictures of the gatherings, and that didn't help any. I got even more scared, and the fear just intensified and intensified and intensified. And I got very, very stuck, really stuck. I was filled with attachment. Please, please don't go. You know, if you love me, you'll stay home, you know, that kind of thing. And lots of aversion, you know. Why would you, why would you want to go to a thing like that? You know, all those people partying in the desert, you know. And it went, it just went on and on. So it's been mentioned in here that wonderful Buddhist teaching about the second arrow. And this was a classic case. So in this teaching, you know, you have whatever suffering you have, the disease, the injury, the emotional upset. Those things are part of being human, right? And they're bad enough in themselves. Or husbands who want to go to Burning Man. They're bad enough in themselves. But then, what do we do? We actually, that's one arrow that's in us, we pick up the second arrow and go, I don't like it, I don't want it, take it away. And the second arrow just adds more suffering to what was already a lot of stress and a lot of dissatisfaction, you know. So this all adds up to a major case of dukkha and dis and distress. Dukkha is, if you remember, dukkha is the Pali word for stress or dissatisfaction. And of course, the other thing that was true was I was being very, very righteous. 
very righteous. I knew that what he was doing was certainly not worth doing. And so my righteousness definitely blinded me to the fact that I was adding all those arrows. I just thought I was right. So everyone here, everyone here has suffered. You've suffered here at the retreat and you suffer in your lives outside of the retreat. And as we listen to you, we hear the stories. It's, it's, I'm so honored by what you and many, many other retreatants over the years bring to the conversations we have with you. The stories of heartbreak and illness and injury and grief and abuse and anxiety and fear. We all know how much pain we can create in our lives and how much more pain we create when we want things to be different from the way that they are. Some years ago, I was involved in a fairly difficult situation in the meditation community in Santa Cruz and there were a bunch of pretty angry people, some of them very angry at me, And we were going to have a meeting. And the meeting was, we were hoping to resolve some of this. And um, I had called in as much advice as I could get. And the day of the meeting, I called my friend Ajahn Amaro, who was still living in California at the time. And we talked about what was going to happen and how I might best work with it. And at the end, I said to him, you know, do you have any last words of advice? He thought about it for a minute, and then he said, yes. He said, don't suffer. <laughs> so, you know, when somebody tells you don't suffer when you're headed into the, a very difficult meeting, it's sort of like, yeah, how do you do that? I don't know. I wasn't so sure. But it's good advice. You know, don't suffer. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Sometimes we get the advice, you know, someone will say to you, well, just let go. Just let go, you know? Just let go. Right, you know? (laughs) Right. But how, you know? How to move from that tight, constricted place of suffering, how to change when the mind and the heart are really shut down, how to be present in the body, and how to find the place of wisdom and freedom. Sometimes I like to remind myself that all of the great creation stories begin with a time of darkness and chaos before there's any emergence of order. Isn't that great? And our own journeys follow the same pattern. Our own journeys start, often start, with darkness and chaos, and we're lost and we're confused, we're maybe grieving or we're maybe depressed or we're frightened. Maybe it's a time when somehow things were okay, but then you've, you've lost your way, it's sometimes called the dark night of the soul. Times when we yearn to make sense of our own suffering and even that of all other beings. And it's been inspiring me to me to know that that was also true for the Buddha. You know, the Buddha's journey actually encountered, began when he encountered what are known as the heavenly messengers. I think we mentioned them early in the retreat. So if you remember, the Buddha grew up in utter luxury. He was protected from all kinds of, every kind of difficulty his father wanted him to follow in his footsteps and to be a king. And there had been a prophecy that he might become, in fact, a Buddha. And, and, you know, his daddy didn't want him to begin to open up his heart to the suffering of all beings. So he tried to protect him. Had a special palace for the summer and another one for the winter. And, you know, anything that was dead was taken away immediately. So he just had never seen any of this. And he finally got out, you know, he snuck out one night and with his charioteer, his driver, and he went into town. And there he saw someone who was 
old and he was undone. What is this? Wrinkles and sagging and spots and, you know, and his charioteer said, well, that's someone who's old. And the Buddha said, well, could that happen to me? And his driver said, yeah, it happens to everyone. And then they saw um, someone who was very sick, you know, and emaciated and lying there, you know, and filthy and sick the way you can be in India. It's pretty bad. And the Buddha said, could this happen to me? And his driver said, yeah, it could. Happens to pretty much everyone. Everybody gets sick. And then he saw a dead body. Oh, that was really strange. He'd never, if you could imagine if you'd never seen anything dead before, to see a dead body, utterly lifeless, not breathing. Could that happen to me? And the charioteer said, yes, it will happen to you. It happens to everyone. And then he also saw a monk walking through and walking through this village where there were, was the old person and the sick person and the dead person and seeming to walk with a kind of a serenity and ease. And uh, he, wa- he asked his charioteer, well, who's that? And the charioteer described that this was a monk who had, who had left the ordinary way of the world. And so the Buddha began to get an idea that it was possible to have some ability to be present with these things without getting caught in the suffering. And so he went home, packed his bags, and left, and began his search, and began to study with the teachers he studied with before that night on which he was awakened. And later, you know, he taught deeply about the nature of suffering, as Bob described last night. And he also talked about the way that suffering cycles around and around and around. And we all know this, don't we? You, every one of us has created the same story more than once. Now you've thought you were in a new job and it turned out to be just like the old job. Or you thought you were in a new relationship and he or she turned out to be just like the last one you were with. Isn't that annoying? I mean, it's really, you think you've gotten a new thing and it's not, we make the same mistakes repeatedly. But he also taught that it's possible to break out of these cycles of suffering. And that often the first step is the willingness to face our suffering directly, to really look it in the eye. So it's that place, like in the 12-step traditions, where you kind of have to hit bottom and then say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm addicted, or I'm codependent, or whatever it is that is the issue for you. And things won't change until you actually do that. And our friend Noah Levine, who's a teacher who has taught a lot here at Spirit Rock and a lot in Santa Cruz because he was from there in the beginning and now is down, I think, still down in the L.A. area, yeah? And teaching a lot in the, he really started the Dharma Punks movement. And he tells a marvelous story about, you know, he was the son of a Dharma teacher. That's not an easy path. And... And it took him until he was in juvenile hall as an inmate. And then he finally remembered that he knew something he could do. He could be present with his breath. And he, but he had to hit bottom. He had to come to that place where he didn't know himself any way out of suffering and he had to own that he was suffering. So this is the place where we all seek help. You know, that place where we finally go, oh, there must be something that's better than this. And we turn to a therapist or a teacher or or a trusted friend or we come to a retreat or we open a book or we listen to a, a talk that's been recorded. And this is the first stirring sometimes of some faith or conviction that will carry us forward. Wendell Berry says, to go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. 
We so much don't like it when it's dark in our lives. We, we want the light, you know. We, we really try to find those places. There's a wonderful story that's been told at retreats for years, but I like it, so I still tell it, about our Sufi friend Nasruddin, you know, that kind of guy who's sort of a fool and also very wise and um, sometimes very wise. And so one day, uh, Nasruddin lost his keys. So, you know, he had to find his keys, right? Couldn't drive his car without his keys. So he's out in the front of his house under the streetlight, looking, 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 you know, trying to find the keys everywhere. One of his friends comes up and he says, what are you doing? And Nasruddin says, well, I'm trying to find my keys. I lost my keys. And his friend said, well, where did you last see them? Where do you think you lost them? And Nazardine said, oh, I lost them. I think I lost them out in the backyard. That's where I had them last. And the friend said, well, why are you out here? And Nazardine said, because there's more light out here. (laughs) And we do that, right? We do. We look where there's light, even when we know, even when we know we have to go into the dark. So when we push against the stream of our old habits, when we begin to look in our own darkness, there can be a place of profound turning. And this is the place where we begin to come to terms with our old ways, and we begin to see that this place of meeting suffering is really sacred. It's a very sacred place. It's the first step on the path to liberation. So I'm hoping that some of you are sitting there going, yippee, you know, I just spent a week doing that. You know, I'm, I've been facing my suffering all week and I gotta be on my way because she's sitting up there saying that I'm on my way. And you are, You're all, we're all on our way actually. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. We've all begun this process. You don't sit on the cushion. How much did we talk at the beginning of the retreat about all your friends saying, what are you doing this week? You're spending your vacation week silent. And if they knew how much suffering you'd sat with all week, they'd even think it was stranger. There's a teaching in the world of um, Greek philosophy. It comes from the Asclepian healing mysteries that has I've carried around with me for most of my adult life, actually. And it says this. It says, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound. God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound. So really pointing to the fact that there's something about meeting our suffering that is very, very deep. And so as we begin to explore our woundedness, you know, we find all the stories, some of you have been talking today about that, the stories about what we did or what we should have done or where we went or where we should have gone or what we said or what we should have said or where we were, or where we should have been. You know, it's just around and around and around, all those stories. It's so amazing, the stories that we carry. A few years ago, I went to my 50th high school reunion, and most of the people there, all but one or two, I had not seen since very shortly after our graduation. And as I prepared to go there and got there, you know, all the stories came up about Oh, that person was the jock, and he was the football star, and she was the cheerleader who ran around with all the boys, and that one was a brain, and, you know, I had, I had the labels that we all had when we were there. And had they lived out those stories? Not at all. You know, it was really interesting. Some of the jocks and the really lazy students and the cheerleaders, cheerleaders had doctoral degrees, and had wildly successful lives. And then some of the ones who had been, you know, in the yearbook, destined for success, 
had had a great deal more struggle. And of course some had not survived. It was very interesting to see that. And fun, actually. It was really fun to find out, well, who is this person now? Because certainly they weren't who I had thought they had been then. So back to Burning Man. Russell went off to the playa that year. And I was frantic. I was sure the whole time he was gone that he was going to run off with some naked babe, you know, probably someone with body paint all over her, or that he, who is a relatively quiet and sober being, would get caught in a world of drunken parties and wild orgies. And you know, not only did he go that year, but he kept going back year after year after year. And I continued to be afraid, you know, and get scared and to expect the worst. And every now and then, bravely, he would suggest that I should try it, and I always said no. And each year we would argue about it. Terrible arguments sometimes. Why was he going again? Wasn't, hadn't he been enough times, you know? What about me, poor me, and wasn't I enough? You know, a burning man is like the other woman. That's one of the things I said a lot. Just, ah, uh, it was so painful. And then there was one year he went off. And after he'd been gone about three days, I thought, I know what's going to happen. He's going to come home and he's going to have magenta hair. Purple hair, purple hair. He's going to have purple hair. It maybe should be noted that up until about two months ago, I've been having purple hair for quite a while. <laughs> um, but that's another piece of the story. And I thought, he can't come home with purple hair, that would be terrible. And, and I knew it was a story. You know how that, how that is? You know in the mind that you're telling yourself a story. I kept saying, it's a story, it's not true, you're just making it up, it's just a thought. And then I go, no, he's going to come back with purple hair. So finally we got to the end of the time, and often as he drove back, in those years we lived in Santa Cruz, he would call me from um, Donner Pass just to let me know he was on his way. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get this story out of my mind once and for all. So I took a deep breath and I said, dear, what color is your hair? And there was a pause and he said, magenta, but it will wash out. So I was imprisoned by the story of who I was. I was a sp- meditator. I was a, I'm a spirit rock teacher. I'm kind of quiet myself. I'm too old for Burning Man. And I'm too well behaved. And I'm relatively abstemious. And I'm certainly not a party person. And I'm even more certainly not into orgies. And you've probably noticed this week that bur- that. The meditation world is not like Burning Man. It's very different here. And it's not just that it's not so dusty. It's different. But you know, he's a stubborn man. Still is, was then, is now. And he kept going year after year. And he, in the process, created, helped to create a wonderful service project that works to prevent sexual assault at the event. And year after year, he kept coming home to me. And he was happy to be home and to be with me. And he improved. He got softer and more open. And he hadn't been a meditator, but he kind of began to meditate a bit. And I thought, huh, how can this be? You know, it didn't fit my story, did it? And he shared fabulous photos and he told some good stories. And then I found others who had been and who had returned unscathed. And I even found some spirit rock teachers who were quietly going off to Burning Man. And I even have discovered a few burn teacher burner, burner wannabes, one of whom is sitting right over there in the blue shirt and the, uh, with no hair. That one. <laughs> that one. Hmm. Christiana wants to go too? (laughs) Why not? Um, So after a while, my grip on the story began to lessen a bit, and I began to look with clearer eyes. And for one thing, he told me maybe I shouldn't go, 
So that definitely um, <laughs> began, huh, well, maybe I should. And I began to look at my fear. You know, and I began to see that the fear was what was clearly keeping me away. And I didn't want to live ruled by fear. And I wanted, I decided I really needed to see for myself, just as the Buddha instructs us to do. The Buddha says, test everything, check it out for yourself, see if it's true. So I felt like I had to test, was my story true or was it not? And so I stepped out of both the story of who I was and the story of what Burning Man was and became a person with a ticket to Burning Man. And in honor of Russell's magenta hair, I decided that I'd put some purple in mind for the event. And then we got ready and we loaded up the car and we went. And it turned out that Burning Man was as challenging as any retreat I've ever been on. It's a ferocious and a demanding teacher. And it's a teacher that teaches in kind of Zen style with koans. And koans in the Zen world are stories and questions that you can't figure with the rational mind. Like what is the sound of one hand clapping is one that most everyone knows. It was and is awful and scary and fun and some of the hardest camping I've ever done and I've done a lot and it was exhausting and it was delightful and it was confusing and how could all of this exist in one place? And we had an escape clause. He'd said, you know, if I wanted to leave, um, he would take me to Reno and put me on the airplane. I could go home. So every morning that year I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning and the party was still going on out on the playa, you know? The incessant dubstep music, kabom, kabom, kabom. And I would think, how can they still be doing it, you know? And I would decide, okay, today's the day, I'm going. Today's the day, and then go back to sleep for a while and wake up, and a few hours later, you know, the noise has died down, and we'd be sitting out um, with friends in the silence of the desert, because we always camp out way out on the edge, and it's just beautiful, and people were really nice, and I'd think, well, okay, I'll stay today, and maybe I'll leave tomorrow. And even though I thought I knew who I was, or what I was doing, or who they were, or what they were doing, I found out I really didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know who I was. I certainly wasn't a meditation teacher out there, It was so confusing and so challenging and the only way I could make peace with it was with the notion that it was a koan, that I could not figure it out. I just had to sit with it and let it work on me and see what happened. So it knocked me out of that story of who I am or who I was anyway. And I went back into the world as a woman um, with purple hair, and I kept it that way for five years. And that completely changed my interactions with people. It was so fun. You know, as an older woman with purple hair, you were apparently automatically friendly and available and interesting and fun. (laughs) And somebody said to me, it's like you're holding the puppy. And I thought about it for a minute. I said, no, no, no. It's not that I'm holding the puppy. I am the puppy. (laughs) And sometimes people would say, can I take your picture? You know, I want my mom to see it, so maybe she'll do it. And I had amazing and heartwarming interactions with strangers, you know. A guy in Texas at a grocery store we were at, I have a daughter who lives there, and, you know, he looked like kind of a, um, hard-working, maybe a construction kind of person. Not the sort of person in Texas, anyway, that I would think would like purple hair. And he came up with this big grin. He said, it is so great. This is just fabulous. I love it. I was totally surprised. And another time at the Philly airport, one of the TSA guys just came up to me and threw his arms around me. <laughs> and we just laughed together. It was so fun was amazing. But you know, it began to be its own story, right? And I kept it until just a couple of months ago. 
she's really appreciating and loving this way of in- interconnecting with the world because it wasn't my style. It hasn't been my style. Who or what am I? You know, this is the ultimate spiritual question. That's the question all of you have. So, you know, I was learning with the hair that I wasn't just the quiet self I'd lived with for a long time. And I certainly wasn't the conventional identity of an older woman, kind of wrinkled and frail and forgetful grandma. And I may have been a bit discounted for being a bit weird, but I certainly wasn't being discounted just because I was an old woman. And that's what happens to older women in our culture. We are invisible. We are invisible. Every older woman in this room knows that. And it's not an easy place. So last fall, my hula teacher issued me a challenge because I've been interested to dance some of the traditional hula. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, you have to stop coloring your hair. Well, so that was an interesting challenge. And I actually don't know how it's going to play out right now. You'll have to come to another retreat. Does the purple hair come back? And is it an identity I'm choosing to step into for another period of time? Or will I let it go? Remember that river poem that I quoted the other night, the one again from John O'Donohoe, that says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So, you know, it's fun. I'm being surprised by the unfolding of my own being. So this week, We've rested in this astounding practice of the 32 parts. And this morning, Bob expanded even a little further and invited us to give our attention to the elements, earth, air, fire, water, and space. You know, solidity and movement and temperature and fluidity and space. And he suggested that we sit and walk, really giving our attention rather than to me, to the interaction of these elements, both inside of us and outside of us, and that place where there isn't any inside or outside. We create a strong sense of self out of all of these parts that we've been talking about, out of, of the elements. And we create this sense of self when it's really only this loose assemblage of parts flying in formation, you know. We are just an eddy in the stream of life. You know, the rocks, the different parts happen to be in a particular pattern, creates a particular eddy. And while we're in this formation, we create stories and we create the cycles of suffering that repeat over and over. But the interesting thing and the important thing to remember is that the eddy can't hold. Sometimes it shifts and changes. Some of the pieces move around. You know, the hair becomes purple or then it becomes white or then it falls out. Or the body that was strong becomes weak. Or the mind that was clear becomes a little more confused or whatever it is that happens. And so then, you know, things begin to shift and change and the person is a bit different. And in the end, all of the parts disband and dissolve. So a month from today, I'm going to be 74, a month exactly from today. I've just returned from year six at Burning Man. I went this year vowing it was my last year ever. I'm done with it. I'm tired of it. And um, I came home making plans for next year. (laughs) So the struggle continues and the koan is still challenging. It's clear to me, you heard all about it the other night, I'm deteriorating, you know. Like all of us, even the youngest of us, I'm dying on the vine, you know. And I'm clear that what lies ahead, you know, in the end, there is this loss of identity that we call death. It's actually begun to be a bit of a relief to know that I don't have to be Mary Grace Orr for forever. That sounds a bit onerous, actually, and I think... I might be quite happy to let it go in another few years, not right away. And um, 
I'm actually beginning to be quite content not to know who or what I am. Our Zen friends say, what was your face before you were born? We could add maybe, what will it be after you die? It's very interesting not to know. It's very interesting not to know. And we did that this week in a bit, didn't we, with the body parts, with each part. What is this? What is this? What is this? You know, this afternoon in the body scan, just holding her. It was wonderful, just the touching of the different body parts and then being grateful. And not really, you know, they're very mysterious, these bodies. They're very, very mysterious. And we live in a very mysterious universe, don't we? You know, Bob talked a bit earlier today, I think, or maybe it was yesterday, about the mystery of the universe. You know, this great, vast cosmos that we inhabit. And we've invented so many stories identifying that, haven't we? You go out at night and you look at the Big Dipper. Is there a Big Dipper? Those stars are not even close to each other. You know, it's just to connect the dots, which is kind of what you are. You're a connect the dots, right? And what you are, that if you know anything about the microbiome, you are a whole universe of organisms who are going about their lives, living, having sex, having more organisms, dying, you know. Scientific American tells us in a recent issue, you are more bacteria than you are you. That's astounding. The Buddha kind of knew this. He gave us the description that you're like a sack of millet. You know, it's just your skin creates the sack, right? And there's all these little bits in it. But if the, if, when the skin breaks, when it falls apart, what happens to all the little bits? They're all disbanded. <coughs> so astounding. And we have the temerity to call this me, you know. This morning, we reflected on the particles and you know, protons, neutrons, electrons, and the lack of solidity of things. What is going on here? You know, what is going on here? We so much want an answer. It's so hard to say, I don't know. It's so hard to say sometimes, not knowing is like this. So we've sat together for this week, You've sat with suffering and with joy and some stillness and the wandering mind and the aching body. Have you figured everything out yet? Have you figured anything out yet? Probably a couple of small things, maybe. You know, some people talked this morning with us about having more questions as they left than they did when they arrived. Huh. In the Metta Sutta, it says, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all attachments, is not born again into suffering. Such a strong teaching. By not holding to fixed views. The suggestion is, don't hold on to those fixed stories. And if you can let go of them and have that clarity of vision, that's where we come to an ending of suffering. Things, our perspective begins to change. Soseki, who's a, a poet, says, When the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. Everything changes when the vision clears. When the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. But it's true, you know, in this kind of vast and mysterious universe, there is something truly unusual about being human. And I think it's what makes being human sacred and it also allows us to open to the sacred and that is that place of aware presence. You know, that, that place where we have the power to sit still in the present moment and just be with it. 
And you know, the present moment, even the present moment is itself really strange. Can you find the present moment? By the time you think the present moment, it's gone. Where is the present moment that we talk about so much? It's not findable. It's enormous. It keeps being there. And it's timeless. Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, now is the knowing. And Ajahn Chah talks about the one who knows, the one who is present. The Buddha teaches us to practice aware presence in each moment. And this week we practiced it through this amazing foundation of the body. And it's important as you leave to know you can do this anywhere. You can anywhere, as long as you are alive and aware, you can give the attention to breath and body. You can come back again and again and again. You can be with the 32 parts and more in any given moment. It's not just a mental exercise. It has transformed the lives of millions of people who have experienced great release and great freedom, who have awakened to their own nature. You know, when the Buddha, shortly after he was enlightened, was asked who he was, the answer that he finally gave wasn't a who. He said, I am awake. I am awake. That was how he could identify himself. I am awake. The human experience, and especially including the human body, is not a mistake. It's not something we're supposed to get out of. It's something that we are supposed to awaken to, something that we perceive differently when we are deeply present. Have to be careful with each new insight. Sometimes we're a little inclined to think, maybe now I've arrived, maybe now I'm there, now I know. But that's not such a useful place. There was a cartoon that I saw, I think it was in the Shambhala Sun a couple of years ago, a little boy and his father. And the father is saying to the little boy, he said, in my day, we didn't have Google, we just had unanswered questions. <laughs> there are so many unanswered questions. It's great to have unanswered questions. Don't tell our friends at Google this, but it really is great to have unanswered questions. And not knowing, don't know. It was a Zen teacher who used to teach that a lot. Don't know. Don't know. Just don't know. It's such a helpful teaching, probably one of the most helpful. Our friend Donald, who's teaching upstairs this week, says, remove the intention to know. Remove the intention to know. And there's a great story that I won't tell you all of, but it's about the Emperor Wu, who was a Chinese emperor. And he was a real spiritual seeker. And uh, one day, Bodhidharma, who was the great Zen sage, came to his court. And the emperor um, realized there was something kind of special about this guy. So, you know, he was an emperor and he'd built a lot of monasteries and hospitals and all those good things. And so he, uh, he said, well, what about the merit of all the good works I've done? And Bodhidharma looked at him and said, no merit. Well, you know, you don't say that to the emperor. And he said, well, what about all the sacred texts that I've been reading? And Bodhidharma said, eh, nothing special, vast emptiness. So that really got the emperor's attention. And he looked at Bodhidharma and he said, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, I haven't got a clue. (coughs) And the emperor was so undone that he got kind of dizzy and disoriented. And when he got himself pulled back together again, Bodhidharma was gone and he never saw him again but it changed his life. Try it. Ask yourself, who are you sitting there? It's a great practice. I've done it. It's fun. And so you ask yourself, who are you sitting there? And then you say, I don't know. Then you ask the question again, who are you sitting there? Haven't got a clue. And begin to feel what it, like not knowing. What is this? What is this? 
When we let go of concretized knowing, we open to the emptiness of things. If I could send you out tomorrow with just one thing, it would be this. Be available to wake up in any time, in any circumstance, maybe even at Burning Man. Be available not to know. Be available to find out that you are something different from what you thought. Maybe to have green or turquoise or orange or purple hair or no hair at all. Be available to find the liberation that is present in every moment. We don't arrive at an answer. And that's the end of it. We only wake up again and again and again. We wake up to the mystery of the body, to the mystery of the mind and the heart, to the mystery of the cosmos, to the mystery of being. And I think that this is perhaps wise view. So let's sit together and breathe for just a moment. Just stay the way you are. You don't have to rearrange yourselves. So thank you very much for listening and for your presence and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.